from Kurtco Media. Travel It Matters MasterChef series is brought to you by Accor, a world-leading hospitality group. And brought to you by Stone Street Estate Vineyards in Sonoma County, California. Coming up on the show. And he went from San Lucia down to St. Vincent and all through the Grenadines. There was no cell phone reception. We'd wake up and the fishermen would knock on the boat and they'd say, we have lobster, we have snapper, we have conch. What time do you want lunch? We'll have it ready for you on the beach. And then we'd come at one o'clock. They would have the spread laid out. And it's just the most beautiful, simple thing you can ask for. That's Chef Nina Compton. I'm Bruce Wallen. And this is the Travel That Matters Master Chef Series. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Travel That Matters Master Chef Series, where we are talking to some of the world's top chefs about pretty much what you would expect us to be talking about on this show, and that is travel and food. So far in this series, we've heard from Danielle Balud, Marcus Samuelson, Gail Simmons, and many, many others about their favorite food destinations all over the world. And not that anyone is asking, but I also have a few favorite food cities of my own, many actually. Here in the U.S., if I had to choose one single standout place for its food and just the whole culinary culture around it, it would have to be New Orleans. I've only been in New Orleans twice, but both times it was with my great friend Chris Bellman who grew up in the city. And and so I got this very much locals tour of the incredible food scene there. Everything from fine dining to, to crawfish boils with, of course, plenty of Corpse Reviver cocktails thrown in along the way. Now, that food scene, like how bringing something new and noteworthy to a city like that is not an easy task, especially for an outsider. But that is exactly what my guest today has done. Her name is Nina Compton, and you probably know her as one of the most beloved Top Chef contestants of all time. But her background before Top Chef and the eventual path that she took to becoming a James Beard award-winning chef in New Orleans is a fascinating one, one that includes a childhood growing up in San Lucia, where her father was the country's first ever prime minister. We're going to hear about what that experience was like and how that Caribbean upbringing has helped propel her to the forefront of American chefs. We'll also hear some of her insider tips for San Lucia and other Caribbean islands. And, of course, we'll talk about her adopted hometown of New Orleans, her two restaurants there, Compare Le Pen and Bywater American Bistro, and some of her top spots around town for food, cocktails, and more. Hearing her talk about the curried goat and the copper bunny cocktail at Compare Le Pen has me thinking about my next trip to New Orleans already. And, of course, she got me thinking about the Caribbean as well. After my chat with Nina, I speak with another highly creative talent from the Caribbean, the Bahamian artist John Cox, who's going to tell us about a Caribbean art and food festival taking place this October. We've also got future MasterChef episodes coming up with Richard Sandoval and others. So be sure to hit that button and follow Travel That Matters wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, let's take a trip through the Caribbean and Crescent City with Nina Compton. 
Nina, thank you for joining us on Travel That Matters. Thank you for having me. You grew up on San Lucia. Your dad was the prime minister. Can you just like describe for us a, a scene from that childhood? I don't know, you know, something that you did on a regular basis or just something that sticks out for you? Like, what were you doing? What were you eating? What was that like? <laughs> so I had a pretty good childhood. You know, my dad was the first prime minister. So he led St. Lucia from independence from Britain back in 1979. And, you know, his focus at that point was making us basically stand on our own feet as an island. And his focus was on agriculture. So we had a farm in the south of the island in Miku. There's an area called Maho, which is beautiful, lush area where you see waterfalls and rivers and, you know, parrots flying by in the morning. And that's where we had our farm, where we grew everything from bananas to avocados to oranges to you name it, we had it. And on the weekends, we would go down with my dad and we would go and collect some stuff and bring it up for the week. And we spend so many times you know, being on the farm and having such a great time understanding where stuff actually came from and eating it straight from the tree. I couldn't ask for a better childhood. Wow. Well, I can see why that led you to a career in as a chef. But why did you leave that, though? You know, that sounds pretty <laughs> incredible and, and idyllic and I think something that people dream about, certainly. So what was it that prompted you to go to chef school and, and, and leave San Lucia? So I went to school in England and I told my dad I wanted to be a farmer because it was such it was the main industry on the island and it just seemed very natural for me. So I looked at universities in England, walked around, looked at the curriculum and something just did not it didn't speak to me. It didn't feel like this was the right path for me. And I came home for holiday during Christmas time and I told my mom I'm like I think I want to make dinner for you guys and you know have a cocktail hour you know on the veranda overlooking the sunset just watching the sheer joy that everybody was having because holiday time for us is very festive it's not just Christmas day but it's the month of December where everybody's just celebrating time with your family you know my family was so happy they were smiling they were laughing it was just a beautiful cocktail party and I told my mom I wanted to cook Christmas dinner because you know it's a lot of work for my mom and I said, this is my treat for you for Christmas. I'm going to take care of this feast. And at the end of the weekend, I told my mom, I think I want to be a chef. And she said, why would you want to be a chef? It's so stressful. It's heat. You know, you're working holidays, you're working weekends, it's long hours. And I said, I, I think I want to do it. So she told me, if you want to become a chef, you need to work before you go to school to see if you really want to do this. So my first job was at Sandals and I never looked back. Tell us what that first meal was, though, the one that you made for your parents. What, what was the cocktail? And then what, what are you eating on Christmas dinner in St. Lucia? So we made like little tea sandwiches and we did, um, there's very typical hors d'oeuvre you'd see in the Caribbean. It's a breadfruit ball, which is like a fried, it looks almost like an arancini, but made with breadfruit. So we made things like that. And the cocktails, I use a lot of like hibiscus and juices from the garden of all the fruit that we had harvested that week. So like things like passion fruit punch with a little bit of rum in there was, you know, the, the past welcome cocktail. But for Christmas, it's a traditional, I would say, British slash Caribbean feast where you have the roasted ham, but then you have black eyed peas and rice, and then you have like fried plantains. So a lot of those things are mixed in with a little bit of the Western culture, but also 
the Caribbean culture as well. Very much like your home base now in New Orleans, which pulls from many, many different cultures and cuisines for sure. Let's fast forward a few years. You're on Top Chef. You are incredibly popular and successful and make it all the way to the finale. But then you did come in second place. And that was, I mean, kind of in, in a very controversial finish. <laughs> yes. Look, looking back at that, like, was that good for you? Was it bad? Like, it, it, in retrospect, was that like, was it almost better that you came in second place? You know, looking back on that whole experience, when I got the phone call to do the show, I, I couldn't believe that they had called me. And I told my mom, I said, I think I want to do this cooking competition because I really want to showcase Caribbean food and put it on the map. Because a lot of people just think that Caribbean food is jerk chicken, curries and things like that. There's so much history throughout each island, which each island is also different. Because when you think about Martinique, that is a French island. When you look at St. Lucia, it is French, British, African, Indian. It's a, it's a whole mix. And my mom said, well, if you're going to do the show, I'm never going to watch it because it's going to be too stressful for me. <laughs> you know, the first episode, I had this determination that I was going to win. That, that's why I did it. But as I went through the competition, I kind of changed my mentality of just having fun with each episode, not thinking about the end goal, but thinking more about enjoying the journey. And once I got to the finale, it's, it just got to the point where I wanted to win. I hoped I won. But at that point, I felt I had achieved a lot during that time that winning didn't really matter to me. And people still come to my restaurant. They say, I watched you on Top Chef. I'm really pissed off that you didn't win. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I chuckle because I look at things that. I still came out on top at the end of the day. I still was adored by so many Top Chef fans. I have three restaurants now. So I think Top Chef was definitely something that put me on the map. And I'm thankful for that. And it's always good to leave on the highest note in a positive way instead of a negative way on television. And it also led you to New Orleans where you have, you know, your adopted hometown. What is it? I mean, there are so many, so many reasons, but what is it about the city that, that attracted you as a chef and that, that you kind of love personally? Why, why it's a great fit for you? So we filmed our season in New Orleans. I had never been to New Orleans. My husband and I were thinking about going to New Orleans for our honeymoon. And we got married in June. And I'm like, do we really want to go to New Orleans in the summertime? But it's always been in the back of my head, how can I get to this city? And when they revealed that we're going to be filming in New Orleans, I said, oh, my God, this is a sign. <laughs> and I remember driving through the Garden District and the French Course and just looking at all the buildings and musicians playing on the streets. And it's just bustling. And after we finish our season, you know, once the season wraps, then you start getting phone calls. And my husband and I got so many phone calls to do restaurants in Miami, restaurants in New York, restaurants in Chicago, things in L.A., and everything just felt too good to be true. And then we got our phone call to do the restaurant in New Orleans. And I said, it's just going to be one of those deals that's not going to happen. So we went to see the space and we walked in. It was still in the construction. It was dust everywhere. And I turned to my husband. And I said, this is the one. And we're eight and a half years old. Wow. And that's compared La Pan. So that's been eight and a half years, including, of course, the period during the, the pandemic. And, and that's a, something that hit 
I don't like to dwell on the pandemic, but when we talk about New Orleans, it's something that that hit New Orleans, I think, especially hard given it's, you know, it's such a big restaurant city. It's such a big cocktail city. And when you take that element out of it, plus it was high rates there and everything. Yes. So what was that like? What was the most challenging thing for you as a business owner during that, or, you know, the most challenging moment for you? And then what is the scene like today? Oof. So 2020 was started off amazing. We had so many events, people coming into town. On paper, that was supposed to be the best year ever. We were in demand. We were very busy. And then we got our first case right after Mardi Gras. And, you know, it was a stressful thing because we saw Chicago, New York as a hotspot. And then we became the hotspot. And we started to see reservations drop off, conventions cancel. All the events we had in the books were canceled. So we just saw things just diminish right in front of our eyes. So I think the hardest thing for me during that period leading up to the shutdown was the lack of information we had. And it was very hard to run a business where the staff are asking you all these questions about coronavirus and all of these things. And I had the same information that they had, which was nothing. And we didn't feel that we could operate the restaurant safely. So we decided to shut down for a couple of months until we felt like we had enough information to keep our staff safe and run a business efficiently. So once we shut down, we had to put everybody on unemployment. Had you just opened Bywater Bistro at that point too? So you had two? So we had, yeah. So Bywater American Bistro, March 15th, turn two. And instead of it being the most joyous day of celebrating our second anniversary, it was the saddest day because I knew the next day we had to shut everything down. And now today, is it fully back to where it was? Is it different? What, what does it look like to you? It's busy. Jazz Fest this year was definitely an indicator that it's back. Conventions are back. So I feel like everybody that made it this far is just thankful that we made it. Um, and we can operate our restaurants safely and efficiently. And, you know, the future is right in front of us instead of it being a question of, are we going to make it through? Okay, so back to a little more positive part about <laughs> New Orleans. What what is it like? Tell me about a you know a dish or a dining experience or something that just kind of encapsulates what you love about the city. Or what, what's kind of the quintessential New Orleans dining experience for you? I honestly think the the most memorable or sweetest memory I have is when we first moved to New Orleans. A friend of ours, actually wasn't a friend, he became a friend of ours. He reached out to me on social media saying, my wife's birthday is coming up. I would really like you to cook dinner for her as a surprise. So we were in, you know, exchanging emails and planning the whole meal. This was like maybe the week before I moved to New Orleans. And he was the first person I ever cooked for, I ever met in New Orleans because I didn't know anybody. And after we did the dinner, he invited my husband and I to sit down and have a conversation about all things, all questions we had about New Orleans. So we stayed up until, I don't know, one thirty in the morning drinking, you know, scotch and just talking about what it's like. And then the next week was Easter weekend and his wife made me crawfish bisque. And I opened up this Tupperware container and there's these little heads floating around and I'm like, why did she leave the 
the crawfish heads in the bisque. And then I picked one up and I could see that she had packed all the meat in there and it was well seasoned and it was, you know, breadcrumbs. It was beautiful. And I took a, a sip of it. And I'm like, oh my God, this is the best thing. So I think if you're ever invited to somebody's house for dinner, definitely go because it's going to be your best meal. Although <laughs> there are a number of fantastic restaurants in New Orleans, clearly. What are some of your favorites? You know, if we're doing a quick trip through New Orleans, what are some of the spots we should hit? Oof, you know, when people ask me this, I, I kind of go blank because there's so many choices. So <laughs> I think for me, you know, when I moved here, they were always the classics, you know, Galatoire's, Commander's Palace, Brightson's that did, you know, Creole cuisine at its best. And the landscape has changed. So now we have Ethiopian restaurants, we have Haitian restaurants, we have Senegalese restaurants. So my repertoire has expanded so much because now I can get, you know, beautiful Ethiopian food. Definitely Addis Nola is a must. Dakar is a Senegalese tasting menu only restaurant, which I adore. If I, if I want a nice fancy, but not too fancy meal, I love going to Jewel of the South. The cocktails are amazing as well. Margie's Grill is also fun. Um, just simple, very, very tasty, well done cuisine. And there's Fritai, which is a Haitian restaurant, which I love getting griot, which is amazing. So, yeah, in fact, Marcus Samuelson, we interviewed Marcus for the show and he was talking about the Vietnamese food oh, yeah. in New Orleans, a, a whole district, I guess, that has excellent. So, yes, I mean, it requires probably requires living there for a few years to really get the full picture. I'm still learning. So you brought up cocktails, actually. And, you know, New Orleans arguably is the greatest cocktail city on the planet. And cocktails are very important to what you do at Compare Le Pan. And how do you come into a city like that with such an incredible cocktail tradition and so many great bartenders and bars? And like, how do you come in and do something that 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 makes a difference and that, that, that stands out? The the beauty of this city, it's the community is great. And that's food wise, you know, music wise, it's, it's everybody's very tight knit and very supportive. So when we opened up Compella Pen, we had Ricky Gomez, who is from New Orleans, also has a Cuban heritage. So we gelled immediately because he knew the city, he knew what worked, what didn't work, and also how to be respectful to all the traditions that have come before us. So that was a very easy introduction of having a local show me how to do things properly when we first open our restaurant. And, you know, people just love exciting new things. And that's the great thing about the city is that it's always something new, something fresh, and they're open-minded diners. So you're not going to offend anybody if it's too spicy or if it's salty or if it's, you know, has a lot of acid. They love it. They embrace it. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back to hear Nina Compton's insider tips for San Lucia and beyond. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Women Who Travel is a transported podcast for anyone curious about the world. We talk to adventurers and athletes. I've raced the God's Own Adventure Race, which is on the South Island and goes through the mountains down in the Southern Alps on New Zealand. That was eight days spent out in the wilderness. And chefs. Iranian food is home, it's family, it's love. And we share dispatches from our listeners. Ireland 
is full of these, I will call them ghosts of the past. From stampeding elephants to training sled dogs. We hear it all. The dogs will curl right up with you and it can be kind of cozy waiting things out. New episodes of Women Who Travel publish every Thursday. Join us wherever you listen. Okay, so walk me through a meal there. We're, we're going to start with a cocktail at the bar. What are, what are we starting with and then, then what are we eating? So I would definitely start with the, the copper bunny, which has pineapple. It's very citrusy, very bright to start the meal. And then I would, I would just start off with like something simple like the blackened piggers. They're crispy, they're salty, they're a little bit spicy. So that's a good way to just get your appetite rolling. So I would, I would definitely get something chilled. We have beautiful oysters we get from Alabama, Mississippi that are great. Sweet, briny, just a nice little pop. And then do something like the tuna tartare or our hamachi crudo. It's just a nice way to start the meal. And then, of course, you have to have the curry goat. Sounds fantastic. The curry goat. I was reading about that. Next time. Next time I am in New Orleans, I'm going to have that curried goat. Okay, let's go back to St. Lucia. When you visit now, kind of what for you is, is kind of the ideal day when you're, you know, it's more of a vacation, but it's coming home. But what do you love to do there? So when I, when I get home, the first thing is you get off the plane and you hit that nice warm sea breeze. You know, it is a very mountainous island. So going from one end to the other takes about an hour and a half. When my mom picks me up at the airport, we always stop at this restaurant, Savans Bay, and we always get the dal. So it's a fried dough with like split peas. And I definitely have to have a cold pita, which is our local bear. So we break it up as, along the way. And then maybe 45 minutes into it, we'll stop somewhere else and just sit and just have like, you know, a lo- like local juice, whether it's mango juice or guava juice, just sit out and just break it up. And then when we get home, then, you know, she's probably going to have a feast for me when I, when I get home. But I kind of like to just stay at my mom's house and just relive my childhood because it's about waking up and going and picking mangoes or picking guavas or picking star fruit. That's always like the routine when I go home. So it's just about not, you know, going crazy, but just laying low, going to the market, you know, getting some like cow heel soup from one of the vendors. And then definitely the beach must go to the beach. As an outsider, as a tourist, how, how can you kind of replicate that type of the simplicity of the experience. We're not yeah. trying to do too much, but but kind of like experience it the way you do. So there's one place that I would definitely think does it very well. It's called Fondue, which is in uh, Soufraire. It's a husband and wife that has, I think it's nine, nine cottages, I want to say. They restored all these old Creole homes. Some of them are hotel rooms. Some of them are like B&Bs because you're on this plantation, so you're surrounded by vegetation. You're surrounded by fruit trees. So I think that just ease of not being in a city or close by, like you're basically in the rainforest and you're enjoying all the sights and the sounds of, of just what the island has to offer. That sounds amazing. What, what was the name of it again? It's called Fondue. Fondue, okay. Well, it, yeah, and maybe a few days there and then a few days on the beach too. So yes, get of the course, both, yes. Both experience, yes, that's, uh, that's amazing. And I do think people often, you know, overlook, they think, Caribbean, they only think beach. Right. And so it, it is a nice way to experience the Caribbean islands is to get inside and to get away from the beach sometimes. So yeah. What are some of your other 
favorite spots in the in the Caribbean. You mentioned Martinique earlier. Are there are there places that you like to go? I mean, I, I'm guessing when you go to the Caribbean, you go home. But are there other right. islands and and countries that you like? The other one that is very close to my heart is the Grenadines. So Saint Vincent is the island down from Saint Lucia. My dad is actually from the Grenadines. He's from from Canawan. Every Easter, my dad loves sailing. So. When he grew up, he would always go sailing with his cousins or uncles or whoever it was. He was always somehow sailing. And during the Easter, Easter weekend, there's a big regatta in the Grenadines where everybody from all over the Caribbean comes down for this. So we would always be in the Grenadines for that. And I think that is probably the perfect weekend I could ask for because it's just, you know, you're seeing old friends, you're never on the land, you're always in the water, you're always in, you're just wearing your swimsuit for three days and nobody's mad at that. <laughs> um, so that's one of the things I would say is definitely a must is the Grenadines because a lot of people don't know about it and it's untouched and it's beautiful. And Canawan now, there's a, there's a result, the Mandarin Oriental there yeah. or something like that. So is he, he's from that actual, the island where? He's from, yeah, from Canawan. Oh. And it's, it's not a very big island. No, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's beautiful. It is absolutely stunning and the people are beautiful. And, you know, I went for my 40th birthday with my mom where we, I, I said, mom, I'm turning 40. I want to do something that's so simple, but meaningful to me. So we all, we chartered um, a boat and we went from St. Lucia down to St. Vincent and all through the Grenadines. And it was just the best. There was no cell phone reception. You know, we'd wake up and the fishermen would knock on the on the boat and they'd say, today we have lobster, we have snapper, we have this, we have conch. What time do you want lunch? We'll have it ready for you on the beach. And then we'd come at one o'clock and then they would have the spread laid out. And it was, it's just the most beautiful, simple thing you can ask for. St. Lucia, the, the ingredients, we've talked about a few of the dishes already here, but let's say I've, I've convinced you, and I'm, I plan to someday, but uh, let's say I've convinced you to... Invite me over for dinner at, at your family home in St. Mm -hmm. Lucia and you're having, you know, maybe it's that Christmas month. Like what are, what is the, what is the meal, the traditional meal that, that you're making with your mom or, or what are we, what are we eating? What are we drinking? So definitely Christmas is you, you have to have your Christmas ham. And my mom likes to give plenty of options because my brother's vegetarian and we have to make sure we have plenty of vegetables out. I love the big Florida avocados. So we definitely have some kind of avocado salad, plenty of tomatoes and cucumbers at that time. And then we have breadfruit, sweet plantains, uh, rice and peas. And then she'd probably do some kind of whole roasted fish that, you know, the fishermen, they will call up and say, hey, we have snapper, we have dorado, we have something. And then she'll just roast that in maybe coconut milk that's wrapped in a banana leaf. So it's, it's just simple cooking. Simple and tasty. Okay, what's next for you, professionally or in your travels? What What are you looking forward to? So, retirement. <laughs> I'm with you on that one. <laughs> I've asked so many people, like, you know, what's the end goal? How do I get there? And all my chef friends are like, I'm trying to figure it out. So, I'm trying to manifest how I can get to the finish line. But I'm excited about October because I'm doing, I'm going to Portugal for the first time. And then I'm going to going back to Paris because I can never get enough of Paris. And then we're doing Milan as well. I haven't been to Milan. So this this year is just really about 
going to places I haven't been or revisiting some of my favorites. Very nice. Well, having just interviewed George Mendez, uh, Portuguese heritage and, and now in Boston, opening up a new restaurant in Boston, I think you're going to look forward to some very, very tasty food in Portugal. So. Yes, I can't wait. Yes. Well, enjoy your trip. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. And now for the Wallen Wrap-Up. Chatting with Nina today definitely made me understand why she was so popular with Top Chef fans. She's just got that quality that, you know, she's the kind of person that you want to root for. And she definitely made me want to get back out to New Orleans and the Caribbean. One potential excuse to get back to the Caribbean, to the Bahamas in particular, is the upcoming Culinary and Arts Festival at Baja Mar this October. Now, I think if we are being completely honest, art is not the first thing that comes to mind when we think of the Caribbean. This festival is designed in part to change that perspective, while also, of course, you know, bringing out great food and, and chefs like Marcus Samuelson and Scott Conant. The art side of this event, is put together by the preeminent contemporary Bahamian artist. His name is John Cox, and his work has been exhibited all over the world. John is also a curator, and he's the executive director of arts and culture at Bahamar. And I spoke with him about why we should be excited about Caribbean art and the Bahamas in particular. How did you get into this world growing up? Did you grow up here on, on this island? I did. I grew up here. Both of my parents are Bahamian. I did go to school in the States. I went to art school. I went to the Rhode Island School of Design. And then I came back. I became a faculty member at the College of the Bahamas, which is now the University of the Bahamas. And I taught there for quite a while and kind of went back and forth between working there and also working at the National Art Gallery of the Bahamas. I worked in education, first museum education. And then I, the second time I went back, I was their chief curator. And at that point, this is when Bahamar was just developing and they wanted to have a major art program here. So I left the gallery and joined Bahamar to kind of frame the program. Like this is when we were still like a construction site. And as we became operational, we had to just think about what it meant. Okay, so we have all this art here. What does this mean? Like, are we just decorating or are <laughs> we doing something that's more about experience and kind of moving the culture forward in a way that helps kind of define who we are? Other countries, I think, take for granted how firm the cultural impact is that is had. If you travel to Europe, you go to some Italian little, little town, you, you know, like it's this it's a huge is, part of their identity. This is not, right? this is not a question, right? right? So in the Caribbean, it's, it's strange. Like some people can't tell the difference. It's like, is Bermuda, Barbados? Like, uh, well, where are we? Like people don't really know. Right. And so because people are unfamiliar with the region, there's a kind of like a vagueness like to where you come and especially, you know, resorts. I mean, I, I love Bahamar, but big resorts sometimes tend to contribute to this. Like, I don't know where I am. It's the same place. Yeah. Because I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm, I never leave the resort. For sure. And I mean, look, I think that's very good that, that you guys have put such an emphasis on the art to give that sense of place. Because, yeah, I mean, I can look out the window and it looks pretty similar to other other islands exactly. and, and the beaches and everything. So that that is a big part of it. Yeah. But but let's start with Bahamian art. Mm -hmm. So why are the Bahamas an exciting point? I mean, you're you're an artist and a curator. Like sure. why is this an exciting place to be as an artist right now? I think the entire region is, but specific to the Bahamas, our art community is very strong. 
over the last two decades, we've just seen growing and growing momentum of people's practices grow, but then also just the reach and the exposure that a lot of Bahamian artists are getting through their gallery representation. You know, more and more Bahamian artists are represented by uh, global galleries. The identity of the Bahamas is something that is important for us to keep evolving and updating. And I think the visual arts, the arts in general, but the visual arts, I think in a way have have been helping form and kind of revise what it means to be a Bahamian, especially in a kind of global context. And I think some of this has been going on already, but it's like we have these moments where, you know, you could kind of peel back a few layers and say like, oh my God, I didn't realize, you know, this artist did that, or I didn't realize that this artist was already doing this and has been doing it for the past 10 years. Um, and so these opportunities like this festival, but also as we move into the future, I think we'll just kind of reveal more and more of the strength of Bahamian art. So what like what are the things that you think like people would expect of Bahamian art? And then what are the things that, that surprise them about it? Well, I kind of think that what people expect of the Bahamas is framed by what tourism has framed for the world, right? I always say to people, if you ask 100 people in a room about the Bahamas, 93 of them are going to say, oh, I was on vacation, I went on a cruise, and my sister got married there, or I did a family reunion, or something like that. So it's going to be some kind of tourism experience, right? It's not going to be like, oh, I'm, I'm partners with a doctor that happens to work in a clinic there. That's, right. <laughs> that's going to be rare, right? So what that does is it means that the experience of the Bahamas is largely transient, Right. It's like you, I, I was there, but it, it, my experience was based on how I was managed while I was there, which is normally going to be I stayed in the hotel, you know, I, I maybe didn't go very many places, you know, um, I saw this, I saw the next thing. And so what we're trying to do is to see if we can just reimagine how some of that works because tourism frames the expectation of what draws people here. We right. have to then think about like, how can we inform that? expectation by injecting art and culture into hospitality, right? So I kind of feel like hospitality is the big highway and art and culture is another kind of like off-ramp that we want to kind of cross over this line. And so, you know, it's kind of like you're putting like a fish net out and you're trying to catch <laughs> catch the fish. Because even if you get like just 10% of the amount of people who come here and say, oh, I didn't realize that that was there. I didn't realize that I was going to see this big gallery. I didn't realize that I was going to see this artist that actually also shows in the Guggenheim, right. but they're actually from here. Right. I didn't realize that. So you start to like turn the ship around slowly. What are some of the other areas of the Caribbean that are exciting from an art standpoint, from from your perspective? Jeez, man, I, it sounds kind of silly, but like the whole thing, right? So if you start in the South, right? Like Trinidad is amazing. I mean, Aruba, you can go through everywhere. Aruba, you know, St. Kitts, St. Martin, this is kind of almost within the Caribbean. There's this like mini diaspora of artists like moving around. So, you know, for a minute there, we had a curator of the National Art Gallery was actually from St. Lucia. So you have this kind of, these exchanges of ideas and programs that are going on. So we have these like kind of grassroots organizations that take place. There's one in Trinidad called Alice Yard. There's one in uh, Barbados called Fresh Milk. And it's just this mixture of artists in Jamaica is amazing. I, Ebony Patterson. I mean, there's a lot of different practitioners all through the Central and Southern Caribbean. And the region is a lot more complex than people imagine it to be, you know, because we've all been colonized right, by different countries. And so you have like the, the English speaking, the French speaking, the Spanish speaking parts of the region and all of those things really just create this like very, very rich history, which is all reflected in the art, but especially in the contemporary art. 
Nice. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time and, and love what you're doing here. Absolutely. Thank you. I'd like to thank Nina Compton and John Cox for joining us today on Travel That Matters. For more information on everything we talked about, please check out our show notes or visit kurtco.com backslash travel that matters. Travel That Matters is produced and edited for Kurtco by AJ Mosley. Music by Joey Salvia. Marketing by Katrin Skipertis. And hosted by me, Bruce Wallen. And we will see you down the road.